James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Would you stand, and we're going to read the Word of God, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to get started here this morning. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are you not... Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Forever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Thank you, Father, for being so good to us. God, I thank you that you didn't show partiality when you chose us to be in your family. God, thank you that you had your eye on Oklahoma and Kansas and God, that you had your eye on folks that will never be famous or never be wealthy. Father, thank you that you're a God who reaches into into the broken of the world and you make them your treasure. Father, that's fantastic. God, we love it. God, help us to be like that. Help us to be like that. Teach us how to love like you love. In Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Okay, so I want to tie in last week and this week. So last week we looked at what is God's deal with the widow and the orphan. It's everywhere in the scriptures. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. It's all over God's continual kind of exhortation that we visit the orphan and the widow. And what did we conclude? If you remember what we concluded was we see that it is both God's character and it is in the gospel that we do so. Okay, so, so in other words, we're just being like our father. So, so God is the kind of God, it's in his character, that he leaves the glories of heaven and he visits us, right? He puts on human flesh. He's born into poverty. He's born into obscurity. He enters into our suffering and he meets our greatest need. God leaves the glories of heaven and visits us the needy, okay? And so then after he saves us, he's like, okay, now you go be like me. Like you, you go have my character, Okay, I have loved you, now you go love others. And you love them the way that I have loved you. So what's God's big deal with the orphan and the widow? Why does he bring that up so much in Scripture? Why does he want us to live that out? Because when we do, we are living out the gospel. We are living out how God has loved us. Now, this morning, we're looking at a very similar thing. We're looking at the sin of partiality. Now, what exactly is partiality? Partiality is when you show favoritism to someone because of their outward circumstances. So in other words, you say, okay, you're valuable because you got money. 
You're valuable because you dress nice. You're valuable because you're beautiful. You're valuable because you work at this place or you, you have this degree or you have this outward situation that I am going to favor, okay? Now, God is really serious that we not do that. First verse in James chapter 2 says, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't hold the faith in Jesus Christ with partiality. Don't, don't, don't be partial in the way that you treat and love other people. Why is, God, why is God telling us? Why is he commanding us? Why is he so serious about that? Same thing as last week, because it's in his character. Okay, because God, that's the way that God treats us. God, you know what God didn't do? God did not say, okay, I'm going to take the top 10% of humanity. I'm, I'm going to get the smartest and the most beautiful and the most successful and the richest. And, you know, those are the people that I'm going to save and bring into my kingdom. I, for one, am glad that he did not that because I ain't in that 10%, right? And most of you are not either, okay? God is, God is not a God who shows partiality. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, let me read you some verses here. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. For the Lord, the God, your, your God, is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. You can't bribe God. He's not impressed by money. He's not impressed by degrees. He's not impressed by, by your status or your beauty. Job chapter 34. Verse 19, in describing his character, says, Who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. In Ephesians, let me give you a New Testament one. Ephesians chapter 6, he's talking about slaves and masters. And he says in verse 9, Masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no partiality with him, God does not show partiality. You know what God does? God seeks out both rich and poor for his kingdom. God seeks out the lame and the blind and the beggar and the socially acceptable and the socially repulsive. For God in his kingdom, he has pursued Pharisees and tax collectors and prostitutes and widows and orphans and Jews and Gentiles and beggars and lepers and people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. God is not just interested in kings. He is not just interested in presidents or CEOs or sports heroes or famous musicians. God actively pursues factory workers and teenagers working at McDonald's and single moms and rig hands and drug addicts and orphans and convicts and folks living on disability. In fact, what the Bible says is there's more of those people in the kingdom of heaven than the other. Okay? And it's not because God chose partiality. It's because Jesus says, you know what wealth does? You know what success does? You know what beauty does? It actually makes it harder. Remember when Jesus was talking to the rich young ruler, he said, man, guys, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. And all the disciples went, oh, what? And then Jesus said, hey, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. So absolutely, does God save rich people? Yes. But actually, riches are a hindrance to making it into the kingdom. Riches can become an idol. Riches make us think that we don't need God, that we're self-sufficient on our own. And so God is a God who does not show partiality with the gospel. But notice this. How about Christmas? How about the way that he came? Right? How, how about the nativity? How about, how about the Christmas story that we're all going to tell and celebrate in the next couple weeks? How about the way that the glorious triune God of ageless eternity 
how he steps out of the heavens and into human flesh, and he comes as a nobody from the sticks, okay? That's, that's the way he comes. In fact, this was a hindrance to people in the New Testament. And John writes in the Gospel of John, when Nathaniel meets Jesus the Messiah, he's like, wow, this guy's something else, but whoa, there's a problem here. John chapter 1, verse 46, Daniel says, but can anything good come out of Nazareth? For real? This can't be the Messiah. Why? He's from Nazareth. In John chapter 7, Jesus is doing all kinds of miracles, all kinds of wonders. And the people are really tripping over it because they have a problem. They have a problem from where he's from. In John 7, 41, it says, um, others said this is the Christ, but some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? I think one of the most beautiful things about the Christmas story is Jesus is not born to a family in Rockefeller Plaza in New York. He's not born to a family on Trafalgar Square in London or, or at the Arc de Triomphe in Paris or, or at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. He comes to Mary and Joseph, teenage peasants who live in Galilee, who live in Nazareth. That's like being from Slap Out or Booker, Texas or Clovis, New Mexico or Eads, Colorado or Mead, Kansas or Rollins, Wyoming. It's a nowhere place that nobody ever comes from and nobody goes how about jesus genealogy when you open up uh, your christmas story to either matthew chapter one or if you read the one in luke what you're going to find particularly in the one in matthew is he's got some stellar folks in this family tree right abraham's there Woo! you know david's there got a king there but you know who else he's got and, and matthew goes out of his way to list these people normally he doesn't list the ladies but you know what he does he goes ahead and lists them because he wants us to know that you know who else is in jesus family tree Ladies like Tamar, who was, who was a widow several times over, and her father-in-law was not going to give her to any of his sons, and she disguised herself as a prostitute and sleeps with her father-in-law. He doesn't know it, uh, deceiving him. She conceives, and that baby is in the line of the Messiah. Or how about Rahab? She's a Canaanite. She, she's, she's from one of the people that the Israelites were to destroy when they came into the promised land. And not only was she a Canaanite, but she ran a brothel. She was a prostitute, and she's in the line of the Messiah. How about Ruth, the Moabites? On and on we could go about how God is very intentional on making it clear that when his boy steps out of the heavens into human flesh, he clearly comes on the other side of the tracks. So, what do we find? We find a principle about God's heart. God loves, God seeks after those that have no earthly reason to be loved. There's this principle taught in Scripture. I hope you know it. If you've been here long enough, I think you do. Let me remind you of it. And it is this. The Christian life is lived out in response to how we've been treated by God. Okay, So it kind of goes like this. You've been loved by God, so you should love others, right? You've been forgiven, so you should forgive. God has shown grace to you, so you should be gracious. God has shown mercy to you, so you should be merciful, right? This, this is everywhere in the scripture. So 1 John chapter 3, uh, let me, I'll just give you some examples. Verse 16, by this we know love. He laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, Next chapter, John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 
Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. What, what are those verses saying? Those verses are saying we live out the gospel by, by living out how God has treated us. Okay, so here we go. If God is not partial, okay? If God is not partial, that's not the way he treats people. That's not the way that he has sought us out. If that's the way that God has loved us, then you should not hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ with partiality, okay? That's what he's saying. Now, he gives us a picture. I like pictures. You like pictures, okay? So, you know, with, with a sin like partiality, it's really easy for us to be like, what, us, no, we don't do that, no way. And so James gives us a picture here. Let's, let's, let's walk through the picture together, okay? So in verse two, he says, if a man wearing gold, a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, okay, stop right there. So what is the assembly? The assembly is the gathering of the believers, okay? When do we gather? Right now, right? We're gathering now, okay? Some of you gathered in Sunday school. That's a gather, That's an assembly. Some of you gather in your small groups. That's an assembly. Uh, pretty much anywhere believers come together for the purpose of worship and preaching and teaching and encouragement and prayer and fellowship, that is the assembly, okay? So he says, in verse 2, he says, a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, all right? So two people visit the church. First guy comes in, and obviously he is wealthy. How do we know he's wealthy? He's got gold rings on his finger, and he's dressed in nice clothes. Now, that's actually true of probably most people in this room, in the three services, okay? But for James Day, that was like exceptional. Like for someone to come in with gold on their on their fingers, you know, to, to have gold rings and have nice clothes, that meant that you were really wealthy. So in our day, if I, if I try to contextualize this, this is a person that drives up and man, they got a nice vehicle. I mean, like really nice, like like top of the line, loaded out, all the bells and whistles, all the all the cool stuff. And they pull up into church and they get out and they're dressed to the hilt and and, and they've got a prominent position in, in in our in our town and maybe they own a company or maybe they're they're the president or CEO or the mayor or what I don't know, whatever. You know, they're they're known by people. Family looks like they ought to be in a picture, you know, in the mall. They're all dressed real nice, wearing the top stuff, okay? They come in, all right? First guy. Second guy comes in and he's obviously not wealthy. What does it say about him? He's wearing shabby clothing. What is shabby clothing? I don't know. You know, it's just, I guess, not as nice, right? So so not as nice. Maybe it's maybe it's dirty. Maybe it's uh, tore up. Maybe it's old. Maybe it's tattered. Maybe it's whatever. You know, but he comes, in our day, it would be the guy that comes into to the parking lot and, man, the car is held together by duct tape, okay? I got a funny story. Just hold it right there. So I, I was coming up to Joy Friday night, and uh, so I, I had a headlight out for days, and I know it, and I, you, you ever do be like, yep, I got to do that. I got to take care of that. And then, like, it's night, and I remember, ah, you know, I just try to get home. So I've done that several times. I'm headed out to Joy. It gets dark so early, you know. It was already getting dark, and I'm like, I'm going to do it again. You know, I'm going I'm to get stopped. I'm going stop, to get a ticket. And so on my way to Joy, I, I stopped at Grease Monkey. I thought, these guys will just do it real quick, you know. Like, I just get them in there. Burp, that's all I need. Just give me a headlight. There was no line. I drove by. I thought, if there's a line, I'm just going to go to Joy. But there wasn't a line. So I pulled in there, and I popped my hood, and I thought, ah. Oh, all these guys come over, and I knew all three of them, and they came over. And my, you remember the last time my daughter hit my car? Uh, it was just a few weeks ago. And we, we fixed it out in the parking lot. Andrew helped me. And we used a safety pin and a paper clip that we stretched out, and then we, you know, wove it through, and then I think it had one zip tie. 
And so my bumper is held on. And so the guy's opening up. I was so proud of him. Nobody made jokes. Like, you could have made lots of jokes. But, you know, they just they just quietly took the safety pin off and took the, the paper clip undeal, you know. And, take, and they, they put in my new light. And this was so cool. They went in the back, and guy comes out. He never says anything. He just got a package of zip ties. And he, he, he zip ties my bumper back on, you know, and he clips it all real nice. And then, you know, didn't say a word. But I just thought, man, these guys, these guys. So anyway, basically what I'm saying is, I drive into the parking lot, all right? So I drive into the parking lot. So here's a guy comes in, and, you know, his, his car is held together by, by paper clips and, 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 and safety pins and um, comes in dressed in shabby clothing. All right, these two guys come in. Now, what James point out, it points out is there is a distinct difference in the way that these two guys are treated. That's not the gospel. Does that make sense? That's not the gospel. That's not the that's not the that's not God. That's not what God does. Okay? So notice the first guy, what's the big difference? He gets lots of what? Lots of attention. Okay? Here's a great seat. All right? Here's an honored position. Obviously, they, they didn't have this is the way much of the world is, the way India is. There's a couple seats, and then everybody else is on the ground. Okay? Obviously, that's not the way we are. Yeah, you have to really kind of switch a lot of this down around when you're in America. It still works everywhere else in the world. In America, you know where the best seats are? The back, right? Like in, 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 in our day, it would be, let me show you a seat in the back, sir. You know, like nobody wants to be on the front row. Bonnie, she's the only one, you know. But like in, in Jesus' day and still like in India, Guatemala, other countries, the best seat, a lot of times they'll have chairs in the front. Everybody else just crisscross applesauce on the ground, right? And, and that's the way it was. And so this guy comes in. They give him lots of attention. Oh, sir, come on up here. Come here. You can have one of these seats, right? They're excited. He's there. They're hospitable. Can I get you a cup of coffee? You know, lots of friendly conversation. Oh, you, you work there. Let me introduce you to so-and-so. They work there, too. And, and lot, lots of attention. The second guy comes in, and notice what they say. Verse 3. You pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing. You say, you sit here in a good place. while well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there. Or you sit down on my feet. Ah, there's a place over there. What, what does over there mean? Away from me. What's at my feet? Right, down there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep my seat, but you sit on the floor. And this is in a context where the word of God is being proclaimed, where disciples are supposed to be being made, where Christ is supposed to be being magnified. If how you treat people is based on the outward criteria of, of their life, their wealth, their race, their appearance, you're not living out the gospel. Okay? Now, let me back up here. And, and I feel like I need to say this. There's nothing sinful about being wealthy. God's not saying he doesn't like wealthy people. He calls wealthy people in the kingdom. He calls them in and then calls them to be great givers. Read 1 Timothy 6. That's exactly what 1 Timothy 6 says. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. I, I think if I can summarize what the Bible says about wealth, it's, it's dangerous because you could make it an idol. But you ought to earn as much as you can, give as much as you can, and save as much as you can. Okay? So we're, we're not, James is not advocating that you treat wealthy people bad. He's not advocating that. What, what, what he's advocating is that you not treat people at all based on their wealth, their appearance, their clothes, their possessions, their degrees, their race, their culture, none of that. Okay? And here's James' argument. Let's walk through his argument. Verse 4. 
His argument is, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He says, whenever you treat somebody a certain way because of their economic realities or their race or their culture, whenever you do that, he says, you make yourself a judge with evil thoughts. Okay, now, basically what he's saying is, that is an arrogant thing. You're you're like setting yourself up as the judge above God, above Jesus, and you, you, you're, you're arrogantly, pridefully saying, I'm going to judge the worth of this person based on where they bought their jeans. And God says that, that is evil. That is wicked. To try to discern the value of somebody based on their appearance or based on their, their education. My friend, hell will be full of incredibly wealthy, beautiful Successful people who wasted every precious second of their lives, who squandered away in eternity because they were obsessed with what they saw in the mirror and what they had in their wallet. Now, Pastor Daniel encouraged me after the first service. He says, man, you, you, need to, you might want to say something about it's possible to actually do the opposite. And, and that is true. Like, like, I think it's possible to discriminate against somebody because they're wealthy. Like, like, I think it's possible to be like, you know what, that person's uncomfortable for me. You know, I, I don't, you know, they came in, but, I, you know, they're, they're this and I'm this, and so I, I don't want to talk to them. I'll, I'll just stay. I mean, it's possible to the other, you know. I, I think James is saying it's more prevalent that we're drawn to, 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 to people that can help us in some way, physically, materially, but it's, it could be the other way as well. It is evil to think that some people are not worthy of your attention. Did you hear that? It is evil to think that some people are not worthy of your attention. So number one, don't do this because it makes you a judge with evil motives. Number two, don't do this because, look at verse five, because God has chosen the poor to be rich spiritually and to inherit the kingdom. Let me read verse five to you. Listen, my beloved, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? There's different ways to be rich, right? Now, James is talking about materially rich here. That's, that's what they're showing par- partiality about. But, but here's, here's, the, here's the reality. You can be rich in other ways. You can be rich in faith. First Timothy 6 says you can be rich in good works. I want you to, I want you to try to guess. Why, why did the people in his illustration show partiality toward the man that had a lot of money? And if I can, if I can make my guess at that, I think the reason that that always happens is because people are looking for something, okay? They're looking for glory. You know, they're, they're thinking, man, if I could be seen as this guy's friend, that would, that would bring glory to me. People would think better of me. Or if I could hang out with this guy, that might open up a better job for me. If I could hang out with this guy, that might open up better economic opportunities for me. If I could be seen with this guy, you know, my, my reputation might be boosted. They're looking for glory, which is why I think it's interesting how James starts out this passage. Will you read verse 1 with me again? Or I'm going to read it, you listen. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he could have just stopped right there. But he puts a comma, and he says, the Lord of what? The Lord of glory. Isn't that interesting? You see, you're looking for glory in the wrong place. You're, you're looking for glory in, in, in being the friend of somebody who, who has wealth or somebody who's famous or somebody who, who has this or that or success. 
And you're not looking for it from the one who really can give you glory. Glory comes from the Lord. What does it mean to be rich in faith? Well, what does it mean to be rich in money? It means you have a lot of it. What does it mean to be rich in faith? Well, it means you have a lot of it, right? What does it mean to be rich in good works? That's what 1 Timothy 6.18 says. It commands that the rich should be rich in good works. Those are folks that have lots of good works. And here's what I'm telling you today, guys. People that are rich in faith and that are rich in good works, you want them as your friend. Okay, can I just say that? You want them as your friend. People that are rich in good, I don't care how much they got materially, I don't care what they have physically, if they are rich in good works and rich in faith, that's who you want as your friend. That's the person you want praying for your kids. That's the person you want invested in your life. That's the person you want encouraging you with scripture. You want people that are deep in faith, that are are deep in love with Jesus and have a deep impact on the kingdom, no matter how much money they make and no matter what they look like. It is more valuable, it is more helpful, it is more joy-giving, it is more satisfying, it is more useful to your life to be with people who are rich in faith and rich in good works. I think one of the most interesting verses in the Bible about wealth is 2 Corinthians 6.10. Look at 2 Corinthians 6.10. It's a neat verse. He says, this is Paul talking about him and the apostles. He says, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Look at this. As poor yet making many rich. You see what Paul just says about himself? Leave that up there, Teresa. Paul says he's a, he's a guy who physically does not have much. In fact, we read in 2 Timothy, he says, I got an extra coat and I got some books. Those are his possessions, all right? And yet Paul is a guy who made lots and lots of people really wealthy. There's lots and lots of people that are basking in the eternity of heaven in fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, gonna run the, the mountains, the new mountains of the, of the, of the streams of God, the, the, the new heavens and new earth, and, and it's because Paul invested in their life. And then he says, as having nothing, okay, physically, yet possessing everything. Paul says, there's, there's, a, there's a truth that I don't have anything, but it's also truth that I have all things. Folks, here's what the Bible says. God is lavish with the poor. I was reading somewhere. I don't know where I was reading it. I don't know. I don't remember if someone told me this. I, I, I experienced this this week. I think, I think, I think, I didn't check, but I think I'm reading a book called Dignity, and uh, it's a book about uh, poverty in America, and uh, it's not a Christian book, so if you grab it and buy it and then you read it and it had a bad word in it, you're like, well, Pastor Jason. I, I'm telling you off the hand, off, it's not a Christian book. It's a Wall Street banker who quits his job and he lives among the poorest of the poor in several different places in America and he just basically writes down his experiences. And so I, I've been reading that book and so I may have got it there. I don't remember where I got it, but, but I, I think it's true. It said this, if you go down in the, uh, globally in the world, if you go down to the poorest of the poor, okay, they have the least percentage of atheists. If you go up to the richest of the rich, you have the greatest percentage of atheists. Isn't that interesting? The higher up you go financially, the more prominent it is that people do not believe in God, any God. And I, I think actually James, Paul, 1 Corinthians are telling us some of that very same thing. Now, there's several other reasons that 
that James gives here that you should not show partiality uh, to people based on their, their race or their, their economic realities or their wealth or whatever. Um, let me read them to you real quickly, and then we're going to skip them because I want to get to something else, and we're also going to come back to these. So verse 6 says, You have dishonored the poor man. Are, you, are, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Man, I thought of India when I, when I read that. Um, the, the Christians, almost all the Christians are among the lowest caste in India, and they are almost always persecuted by the higher caste in India. Isn't that interesting? So it's what, it was what James was experiencing in his day as well. Verse 7, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Now, let, let's, let's jump into this next section, okay? And I, man, I've, it's 11.56, so I, I'm just going to have to skim this. But let me, let me summarize what James is doing here. James, I think, anticipates that you're going to say, yeah, I probably did this. Yeah, I'm guilty, but it's not a big deal. See, Here's what a lot of people think of Christianity. They think of it exactly the way that you should think of Islam or Hinduism. And that is, it's all about doing more good things than you do bad things. Or it's all about doing the best big things. You know, like some things are more important than other things. Like, don't murder is worth 200 points and don't, don't show partiality, it's only worth five, right? No, that's not the way Christianity works. Christianity works in this way. You're a broken sinner headed to hell. Jesus stepped out of the heavens and came to be your rescuer. He lived the perfect life and he died a sacrificial death and he rose on the third day and he offers you eternal life of being joined to him. And once you're joined to him, now you live out what James calls the perfect law, the law of liberty. What is the perfect law of law, the law of liberty? It's that you love people, you love your neighbor as yourself. And James says, don't say, well, I, I, I did this command, but I didn't do this one, so it's okay. James is saying, that's like saying, well, I didn't, I didn't commit adultery, but I did murder, so I'm good, right? No, no, you're not good. You're living in unbelief. And James says, if you live in partiality, you're living in unbelief, and you're headed to judgment. Look at what verse 12 says. Speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. You've been set free. If you're a Christian, you've been set free. That's what liberty is. You've been freed from your sins. You've been freed from, from the shackles of, of your bondage to sin, and now you are set free to live out the gospel. You're being freed from sin, death, and hell, and that should produce love in you. And that love should look like God's love. Notice what he says. For judgment is without mercy. This is verse 13. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. There's this thing that happens in the scriptures over and over again. And basically it says this. If you're truly a believer, if you're truly joined to Jesus, you're going to have evidence in your life. Okay, did you hear that? Evidence in your life that shows that you're a believer. Right? If you remember from last week, we looked at Matthew 25. God separates the sheep from the goats, and he, he takes the sheep over here, and he says, you guys are mine. You belong to me. How do I, how, how do I know you're mine? What's the evidence that you're mine? Because you live like me. When people were hungry, you fed them. When they were thirsty, you gave them a drink. When they were in prison, you visited them. When they were sick, you came to them. What were you doing? Is that how they got saved? No. They got saved by being joined to Jesus. But then after they received the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, they lived that out. And so James is saying a similar thing here. He says, if you got no mercy, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. You, you're not living out the gospel. You're living in unbelief. All right, I want to jump clear to the end of my sermon here because I want to give you a couple of practical things. Number one, how do we be a friend to people that are not like us? Okay, 
I, I anticipate that question. I anticipate the question of, okay, pastor, so we're going to live without showing partiality. That means when somebody comes through that door, it's not going to matter to me what economic status they are, what race they are, what nationality they are, what, uh, what they drove, what they're wearing. That stuff is not going to matter. I'm going to love people not based on those things. Well, people are going to ask, well, yeah, but how do we do that? Because it's hard to love people that aren't like you, right? Like normally, what are our, what, how do we choose our friends? Well, they're, they're like us, right? Like, hey, you like to hunt. I like to hunt. You like to shoot guns. I like to shoot guns. You like to ride bikes. I like to ride bikes. You have a motorcycle. I have a motorcycle. You like to shop. I like to, right? Like, that's, that's the way a lot of friendships are formed is we like these same things. So how do I love somebody that comes in the door and they don't look like me and they don't dress like me and they, their family's not like mine and we, we don't, we don't we not, you know, they're from a different country even. Or maybe they're poor and, and I'm upper middle class. Like, how, how, how do I love them? Well, here's how you love them. You make Jesus the big thing. You know what ought to bind us together? Not that we, I don't know, not that we all like Western culture or Trump or I don't know. That stuff ought not bind us together. You know what ought to bind us together? You love Jesus and I love Jesus. You were dangling over hell and God reached down and plucked you out and saved you and forgave you and gave you his spirit, took out your heart of stone put in a heart of flesh, and then gave you a mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Me too. Me too. That's what God did for me too. And now we're in this thing together. You say, well, Pastor, what if they come in and they're not a believer? How do I, how do I, how do I connect with them then? If they're not a believer, you know what you ought to see? You ought to see someone that was just like you. Someone that, who was blind in their sin and they didn't see the glory of Jesus. And now you know how you connect with him? You connect with him seeking to display who Jesus is and what he's done. You start seeing people as made in the image of God. Did you know that the poorest of the poor in this world are in the image of God? Did you know that? And, and, and would, would you believe this? They're interesting people. Why? Because they're made in the image of God. Would you believe this? You have something to learn from them. You sure do. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of times we're interested in the wealthy and the, you know, man, what if uh, some wealthy Hollywood star comes to Woodward, everybody wants to go see him, right? Because you can learn so much from him. Well, here's what I'm telling you. You can learn a lot from anybody because they're created in the image of God. I'll tell you what, I learned more about hospitality from Muslims in North Africa than I have ever learned from any American that was like me. There's something actually about being with people that are very unlike you, that you're like, oh, wow, I see that. I've, I've learned a ton from Solomon. You know, not only being with him, but when he comes here. Man, I, I remember, take, I think I've told you guys this story, but I took him to see my grandparents in the assisted living center where, where they live in Scott City. And uh, we leave there. We prayed for him. We got a visit. I introduced him to my grandparents. We prayed for him and everything. This is before my grandpa died. And uh, we were leaving. We were walking down the hall, and he says, Pastor, can I ask you a question? He said, I said, yeah. He says, why do they live there? He said, why don't they live with your parents? Why don't they live with you? Why do they live there? I said, well, because they want to live there. That's where they picked. He's like, that doesn't make any sense. It was great for us to have this conversation because it gave me a chance to see from an Indian perspective how they look at aging. They look at aging very differently than we do. Is ours right? Theirs wrong? Is theirs right? Ours wrong? I, I don't, I'm not making any decision on that. I'm just saying, 
It's really great when we can learn from people that are very different from us. So how do you, how do you be friends? Well, you, you see them as, as people who, who, who are made in the image of God. Now, number two. These are two practical things. Number two. I've had this recurring thing happen to me for 23 years here at Lincoln. It happened uh, not, not long after I got here. I was uh, visiting the leaders in our church. And uh, I was a new pastor. I was 24, 25 years old. And uh, I was visiting the, the leaders. And this, this one leader, uh, we were having a conversation. I was asking them about, you know, church, life, you know, their, their faith, all that. And they made this statement that blew me out of the water. I've, I've, I've said it to you many, many times. But they made this statement. They said, Pastor, I don't, I don't feel like I have any friends in the church. And it was, it was mind-blowing to me because when I thought of them, I thought that they would be the most connected person in this church. But since that time, I've had, I don't know how many people tell me the same thing. Now, I think there's a lot of things that go on there, okay? I think friendship in American culture is a little funny because we're disconnected, we're very busy, we're very isolated. We don't have front porches anymore. What do we have? We have backyards with big privacy fences, and we shoot anybody that gets in them, right? Like, like there's just stuff about, about American culture that's just a little kind of not conducive to friendship, okay? But, but here's... From James chapter 2, here's, here's what I would say. You know what I think a lot of times is true? We're not looking for that second guy. Remember there were two guys that came in? First guy was wealthy, successful. Who's looking for him? Everybody, right? Everybody's looking for that guy. But the second guy that comes in, he doesn't have anything appealing from a worldly standpoint that would cause people to say, hey, I'm going to pursue that guy as a friend. You, you know why I think a lot of people are lonely? You know why I think a lot of Christians are lonely? They're never looking for the second guy. You should look for the second guy. You should look for that guy because you know what? He may be rich in faith. She may be rich in good works. They may become the greatest blessing to your life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I, I pray that you would help us to be just like you. Father, I pray that you would forgive us when we show partiality. God, forgive us when we um, overlook people because of uh, maybe the color of their skin or the culture they're from or their, their economic reality. God, I pray that we would not be those kind of people. God, I pray that we'd be the kind of people that don't see that at all. We see the image of God. We see the Holy Spirit in people. We see faith in people. God, I pray that you would give us a great love for all people. God, give us a love for every tongue, tribe, and nation. God, help us to go to them. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name.